You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. So we're looking at Acts this week. Pardon me while I reset the stage. And um, last week, I don't know how many of you had a chance to hear Tim Dearborn preach last week on the Gospels. If you didn't, I would suggest that you do go online and, um, uh, and listen to his sermon. I think we have a, I know that we have an app too that you can listen to it on. Um, Tim preached on the Gospels. We've been, we've been looking through the Bible ever since June, made our way finally through the whole of the Old Testament. Tim covered Matthew through John last week. This week we're on the Acts of the Apostles. And I'll be honest, what I thought I was going to preach on was conflict this week. And then Tim preached on um, the house of God, the people of God being a place where healing can happen. And that just sounded so much more interesting. So we're going to preach on that today, um, how churches can be a place that heal people. The reality is churches can also be a place that hurt people. And Acts gives witness to the ways that the church of Jesus Christ can be the sort of house of mercy, a house of healing that Tim spoke about last week when he talked about the lame man at the pool of uh, Bethesda who was healed. Acts also gives warning to the ways that the church can fail to be a place of healing and end up uh, being a place of, of hurt, of burden. So the question this evening is, how do we, like in the Bible verse that was read during the baptism, listen to God's voice telling us which way to go into the way of healing? Last week, Tim also started out with a great story, and I'm just going to steal it and use it again. Do you remember his, he has his grandson, Elijah, two years old, who will pray? Do you remember what he prays? He has everybody hold hands, close their eyes, and he prays. Go and pray it. That's the best part. Fire, fire, fire. Amen. I'm like, that's a great opening for a Pentecost sermon. It's what we saw in the Pentecost story. Jesus, 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 fire, fire, fire. And Tim reminded us how we go along and we just lose that. There are fire retardants in life and among us as the church. See, Acts continues the story of the living word, Jesus Christ, in the world. And here's a huge mistake we can make. is thinking that the Gospels tell the story of Jesus... And then, Acts clo- and then that closes down and Acts starts the story of the church. As if the church is something other than the living, breathing, physical presence of Jesus Christ in the world. I worked for a while in Scotland and we had this, um, we call these kind of windows in a church the glory window. I don't know why. And uh, the one in this church in Scotland, in the East Church over there, was a big stained glass window of Jesus ascending into heaven. That's what was back in the glory window. And what'll sometimes happen in Scotland, because it's a neighborhood church, is people will bring their little kids to church and they don't stay for church, they just drop the kid off. So on this particular morning, like this three and a half, four year old little girl had just been dropped to church. She'd never been in the building in her life, right? So this is very interesting to her. And I had the children's talk and we were doing the destruction of the temple when Jesus says, I'll destroy this place in three days. You can destroy it in three days and and I'll, I'll raise it again. And so Gavin Marshall, I don't know how many of you know Gavin, he was an intern here in the youth department at one point. He comes in with his hard hat and his bright yellow like construction thing, and he's got a clipboard and the, and the work order from the Aberdeenshire Council that says, we got to tear this place down. So I said to the kids, well, get out of the pews, walk around here, let's decide how we're going to tear this place down. They just love it when you do that with kids in the church when they've paid this thing off. They're walking around and they had all sorts of ideas like wrecking balls coming through and dinosaurs and 
Doc Ock. That was a really popular one. Let's get Doc Ock from Spider-Man in here. Well, I get all the kids seated again. I've lost one, this little girl. I don't know where she went. And the pulpit is one where you walk up some steps and you're way up in the pulpit so that the preacher can really put the fear of God in you. And, um, and I hear this little voice going, hey, there's pillows up here. <laughs> I'm like, well, grab it, bring it down. It has to go. So she brings it down. And, and I say to Gavin, Gavin, do we have to, are we getting rid of the glory window too? Shouldn't we save that? He's like, no, it says in the order. It goes, smashed to pieces. I don't make this stuff up. I just enforce it. And the little girl goes, oh, but that's Jesus. And, and I go, I know, it's a bummer, but he's got to go. And, and um, <laughs> she says, that's okay, because he's gone up to heaven, and we don't need him anymore anyway. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my words, you have been in the church for 20 minutes and just nailed the practical belief of about 80% of the Western Protestant church. <laughs> He's gone up to heaven, and we don't need him anymore anyway. Well, this is just the opposite experience of the believers in Acts. They desperately needed Jesus every hour. And they were given the Holy Spirit. You remember that Jesus said, you know, it's better if I go away, because if I go away, you have the Holy Spirit. And that will be better for you than the, my physical, you can touch me, hear me, see me, presence among you. So the story of Acts is the story of this life irrepressible of Jesus that continues through the Holy Spirit and through his people. And you wonder how. Well, we get a clue at the very beginning. If you, if you want to follow along, I'm not going to have you stand tonight because I'm, I'm jumping around a bit. But in Acts 1, Acts was actually a two-part story. There's a gospel writer, physician called Luke, and he wrote one of the gospels. And if you want to have some fun, go back through the gospel of Luke and even take like a pen. You can write in your Bibles. That's not a big deal. We'll get you a new one. But take a pen, and anytime Luke mentions the Holy Spirit in the gospel, circle it. Remember, he's writing two stories, back to back. And Luke talks about the Holy Spirit with Jesus' life over and over and over again. So then we get to Acts, and Luke continues his story. He says these lines. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. This is what Luke shows us all the time. Jesus is entirely reliant on the Holy Spirit his whole life. Instructions through the Holy Spirit. Then Luke goes on to tell Theophilus two things that Jesus did. The first thing that Jesus promised twice in there in Acts 1 is that the believers would be given the gift of the Holy Spirit. So that happens when, um, uh, right after, when he's instructing them, it happens just before he ascends into, happen, into heaven. And then the second thing Jesus says to them is, you will be my witnesses. You will give testimony about me. You'll tell the message about me. You will be a living witness to me in the world. That's what the Holy Spirit's for. So in this sermon, when you hear me talking about witness or testimony or word or even Bible, I'm talking about all the same thing. Because, because what the Bible is and how it's put together is the Old Testament is, is the witness. It's the testimony of people who saw God before Jesus came. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is a witness. It's a testimony of people who saw Jesus in the flesh. Acts is a witness. It's a testimony of how Jesus continued to move in the world through the Holy Spirit. And then we have these letters and revelation that continue to act as, as a witness, as a testimony to the living word Jesus Christ. Because as Tim reminded us last week, 
It's not just words that we need. We need a living word. We need life irrepressible, not just a description of what life might be about. And these two things, testimony and spirit together, are essential for the church to be a place of healing. Word and spirit together are essential for you to be healed, for you to rely every hour on the actual presence of Jesus in your life. Churches can hurt people or churches can heal people. And sometimes the exact same practice or event can do both at once. I grew up in the Lutheran church. Anybody else grew up in the Lutheran church? It's a great tradition. Didn't stay in it, obviously, but it's a great tradition. And um, uh, loved it. And, and I want to tell you a story about two different people who were in the very same tradition, and one of them was healed by it, and one was hurt by it. The first person, we're going to call her Bobby. She was a young mom. She had two little kids. She was very depressed, um, which isn't unusual for parents with little kids, especially moms. She had moved to the Seattle area with her husband, and, and she just had this darkness inside, this depression. She was one of these little kids that just got dropped off every once in a while at a Lutheran church growing up. Her family didn't go to church. So she went to this Lutheran church. And in this church, there was something about the way they took the testimony of the scriptures seriously and used them in a very set way of doing worship. It's called liturgy. That just put some order around the chaos of her soul. And she was healed in that place. Now, there was another girl named Nancy, and Nancy I knew. Nancy was my age. And growing up in the Lutheran church, you do this thing called catechism. We're baptized as infants, like we just saw Isaac being baptized as a two-year-old. And, and then when you get to 11 years old, you go every Wednesday, and they spend a year telling you the adventure story of Martin Luther. And then, the, uh, and then you spend two years after that in what's called catechism. It's a word that just means instruction. In the Lutheran tradition, we've got a book called Luther's Small Catechism. And throughout, it tells you some instruction about the Ten Commandments or something else, and then asks you what this means. And where this culminates is after two years, you sit in front of the church, and, and you wear these, these white robes. And if you're girls, you have corsages on, and they have these two pins that hold the corsage on, dress pins with a little mother of pearl on top. Do you remember those? And, um, and what happened in the church I grew up in was it was incredibly shame-based, Pastor Ziegler would sit at the back, it's an A-frame church, and he could fire any question from the small catechism at you that he chose, and you were expected to have it memorized. This scared me to death, and I'm a kid who likes to memorize and likes theology. But so Ziegler would be at the back, and he'd say something like, Lori, what is the fifth commandment? Thou shalt not kill. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not hurt or harm our neighbor in his body, but help and support him in every physical need. It went on like this. He wouldn't give you clues. Well, Nancy's sitting next to me, and she's so nervous about this. Nancy's the one who filled me in on the fact that Judas Priest was not a cult, but a band. <laughs> so we were different. Nancy is so nervous that she's playing with her the pin on her corsage, and it is, it is pricking it is pu- uh, the, the ends of her fingers and drawing blood. And, the, and I just remember sitting next to her and seeing blood on her white robe that she's not even aware of. She's so scared. Well, Nancy didn't last very long in the church. You can't blame her. Same thing, the seriousness about Scripture, the seriousness about the traditions of the church, 
creates a healing space for one person and a hurting space for another. So we have to ask ourselves, what is the dynamic here that makes it, can make it and keep it a healing space and not a hurting space? The early church hit this. It happens in Acts 15. There is a place called Antioch. It's actually north of Jerusalem, but when you read Acts, it'll say that people went down from Jerusalem to Antioch because the way that you told stories at that time is everything is down from Jerusalem because Jerusalem is at the center of God's affections in the way that the Jews regard it. So what happened was some believers had gone down from Jerusalem up to Antioch. They had shared the gospel with non-Jews, with Greeks, with Gentiles. And those Greeks, those Gentiles, had become believers. And so the, the Jews and the Greeks, the Gentiles, had had such close friendships and, and around meals. It would be like current-day Israelis and Palestinians in one of those Israeli settlements just suddenly joining around table, having friendships, giving up their land, sharing their land with each other. Everyone would say, what is going on? Who are they worshiping? Why has this happened? And in Antioch, when they said, who are they worshiping? Why has it happened? These enemies are sitting together. They heard they worshiped someone named Jesus Christ. So they called him Christians. Christians didn't come up with that name. Someone else called him that. So this wonderful healing thing was happening. They, they had an active missionary movement. They sent Paul and Barnabas out on the first missionary journeys, Acts 14. You can read about it. So they came back. Everyone's encouraged until some believers who were of the very traditional, what's called the circumcision party in Jerusalem, came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and they said, this is no good. You guys, you've got to be circumcised if you're going to be a part of God's salvation. Now, they were from a certain group, a sect within the Christian church, and, and they were Christians, but a Jewish sect called the Pharisees. Paul used to be one of these. Here's why the Pharisees were the way they were. There used to be a persecution. The Greeks persecuted the Jews, and the Pharisees hold fast, held fast. They were killed for it. They were persecuted for it. They held on to their identity as Jews at all costs. It was a healing thing for them the law of Moses and circumcision that represented the covenant promises of God. And here they saw that that these people over here, circumcision and the law of Moses was a shameful thing. It was a hurtful thing. And they just went to loggerheads at Antioch. Paul and Barnabas, the, the verb that's used for it is literally they just took on the establishment and said, you cannot require that of this Greek's believers. It's too shameful. You'll drive them out. So uh, Peter comes back to Jerusalem. Go back and read Acts. He hadn't been in Jerusalem because his life was threatened. This is a big deal. Peter comes back to Jerusalem. James, the brother of Jesus, is now the leader of Jerusalem. Uh, James, the brother of John, had already been killed because of persecution. And they have a council. They have to decide, how do we keep the fellowship of Christians a healing place and not a hurtful place for everyone whom God is inviting? And in Acts 15, it's Peter who stood up. Paul and Barnabas, Paul wasn't so trusted in Jerusalem because he used to throw them in jail. So Peter's the one who stands up. And here's what he says. After much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, everyone gathered, my brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. A couple chapters before, Peter had been sent by God to a Greek called Cornelius to share the gospel. You can read about that. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he's made no distinction between them and us. 
Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Well, this silenced the whole assembly, and then they listened to Barnabas and to Paul, as Barnabas and Paul told of all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after Paul and Barnabas finished speaking, James, who's the leader of this conservative sect in the church, says, my brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter's ethnic Jewish name, Simeon has related how God first looked favorably on the Gentiles to take from among them a people for his name. This agrees with the words of the prophets, the testimony of the prophets. As it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the dwelling of David, which has fallen from its ruins. I will rebuild it and I will set it up so that all other peoples may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles over whom my name has been called. Thus says the Lord, who has been making these things known from long ago. Once he finishes quoting from the prophets, James says, Therefore, I've reached the decision that we should not trouble these Gentiles who are turning to God. So what they do is they go on to write a letter. The content of that letter we'll talk about more next week because it has to do with, with what is going on in the letter to the Romans, one of Paul's most famous letters, at least in our time. And we'll look at that, the theology of it. What I want us to see tonight is the dynamic of what happened when they were figuring out how to keep this movement, a healing movement and not a hurting movement. And here's what catches my attention, is they continue to keep the testimony and the spirit together. They keep the word and the spirit together. Witness and spirit belong together. It's the testimony from the scriptures that James quotes. It's Paul's testimony and witness to what God did with Cornelius, I mean Peter's, that everybody listens to. It's Paul and Barnabas giving testimony to what God is doing through the Holy Spirit, the signs and the wonders that always accompany this good news message, this living witness that Paul and Barnabas talk about. And when they write the letters to the believers in Antioch, they start that letter by saying, it seemed good, do you remember, to the Holy Spirit and to us. They never assumed they could understand the testimony, the witness, the word of God without the Holy Spirit. They never assumed the Bible was enough without the Holy Spirit. They always looked for and relied on the Holy Spirit. So it seems to me where we get in trouble and where Acts shows us and the Gospels show us we get in trouble is when we decide we can use the testimony or we can use the Spirit but we don't need to use them together when we separate those two things. So for example, talking about this, the tradition I grew up in, the reason that became a yoke that none of us could bear, and even myself included eventually, is no one ever talked to us about the Holy Spirit. No one ever talked to us about a God who, who loved us in this grace of God that we could actually experience, that God was going to work in our life here and now through this scripture. It just became a yoke too heavy to bear. And I have friends who've come out of traditions that are very much the spirit-filled traditions that have woken us up again to how important the spirit is. But the particular tradition they were in was one that didn't hold together with the scriptures, with the theology of the church, the best testimonies of the church. And they got damaged because when that happens, it's, it's whoever's experience is the most powerful. 
See, this is what happens when you separate them. Take the word of the tradition without the spirit and you get establishment and the establishment will destroy people. Take the spirit without the word and you just get experience. And that experience will leave people bereft. But keep them together. Word and spirit, testimony and spirit, living witness and spirit. And God changes the world. Turns the world upside down like they did in Acts. Heals lives. I want to show you a video just as we wrap up of a woman named Catherine Lynham. She was someone who found that when she sat down to listen to the Bible, to study the Bible, it was just so boring. And they just sat there, and all she wanted to do was get up and move. And so she started paying attention to how the Holy Spirit was working in her life, together with the Word, to, to bring this irrepressible life to bear. Um, and this is a video, and what you'll see are a lot of shots, actually, from Union Church, one of our churches in South Lake Union, uh, connected here to UPC. Um, so, so watch this in Catherine's story, if you will. As a young child, I was involved in tap dance and in modern dance and in jazz dance. And um, later I found that my... Um, love for dance and movement and my love for doing Pilates and the invigoration I felt when I did um, my classes like that allowed me to feel so alive. Later I was in Bible studies and just found them stultifyingly boring. I was just uh, used to feeling so alive when I did Pilates and yet to be in a Bible study it was just deadening to be sitting there and having to be still. So I began on my own to study the word with movements and routines. I found if I put movement with the words, suddenly the words had more meaning and actually the movement gave me an understanding what the deeper meaning of that, that passage was. So I began to see the aha. It actually makes the word come more alive. And the best part was as I began to share it, the thing began to really take momentum as I was creating this thing I now call form. You might find that praying without words, but praying with your body, is even more powerful than your intellectualizing or cognitive processing of a prayer. The embodied prayer, it's way deeper than words. Form is a way of integrating spiritual formation with your physical body. The benefit of this is as you memorize word and bring that word into your body and into your life on a regular basis, you'll find that in the most unusual times, that word will return to you. As you're doing this, imagine that the Lord is guiding your leg, just like you walk in the world through the Lord's guidance. How can your body show you are surrendered to the Lord guiding you? Having scripture in your life brings you closer to God, brings you more into alignment with who you're meant to fully be. And I find that scripture transcends into prayer, that they're interchangeable. My hope is that people, when they hear and think about a passage, a prayer, and movement, that they would think that it isn't just one thing. It's, it's all together and that you can combine scripture with simple movements that will trigger, again, reminder 
as you're in your daily life of something more divine, that you're in this world, but you're not of this world, and that the ever-present awareness of God moving in your life can be there if you invite it and are conscious of it. The way that God led his church in Acts wasn't to teach him how to find a happy medium between witness and spirit. The way that God led God's church in Acts was that they were in word and spirit were so together all the time, embodied, that you couldn't separate them. So I wonder where you are with the Bible at this point in this series that we've been doing. I wonder if you read it only in your head. Or if you ask for the Holy Spirit to be there. I wonder if you ever try memorizing it, to take it into your day with you, to embody it, to live it out. I wonder what you let this word and the Holy Spirit together inspire, whether it's movement, your work, your music, the way that you love the people around you. If it's just a head game or you're never spending any time in the word, you're missing out. You are missing out on the healing and the transformation that Jesus Christ longs to do in your life. But the word and spirit together, embodied, individually and together, well, that turns the world upside down. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206 524 7301 extension 117.